Amazing. Well, it is good to be back with you. I love my community at Country Club Christian Church and everything we're up to there, but we're not having conversations like this too often in any organized format. So it's a gift to be here. Um, and I'm excited to be here tonight. So I'm trying to think, is there any other introduction I need to do? Yes, right around the corner. We are having these conversations in the pews and when I'm talking to people, but not too often here. Some of them will be watching tonight. But um, So the other introduction note, I wanted to make Proclaiming Pride, one of the organizations with which I'm involved here in Kansas City. We're a grassrootsy organization that does events promoting queer spirituality. And we're having our third service at Community Christian Church on Thursday, June 9th. If any of you are interested in coming, 7 p.m. We'll have some storytellers, some songs, some community hour with different organizations boothing the Open Table booth last year. Um, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So find us online, Proclaiming Pride KC, and you can see some of what we're up to. So tonight, to get started, I want our conversation about the ethics of war and peace to be just that, a conversation. I'm not a professional here, and I know there's a lot of wisdom in this room that I have to learn from. So it's going to be a dialogue, and I want to get that started with a quick turn and talk. So either your whole table or someone at your table talk and talk about this question. What do you think about when you think about religion and violence? And I'll give you like a minute or two. A small topic. So when Nick and Latia reached out to ask if I was willing and available to speak tonight, I said yes, because it's the first Sunday night I was available all year. And they told me the topic, and I was really excited. War and violence and Christianity, oh my. And then I hung up the phone with Nick and said, what did I just get myself into? Because this is a huge task, a huge topic, but I think it's one that we, we can do together. So even if y'all don't get anything from me, I think we're gonna have a good time tonight. Again, it's going to be a discussion, but I am a full-time minister and a huge biblical nerd and aspiring biblical scholar. I don't know when one becomes a biblical scholar, but I'm aspiring to be one. So tonight we're gonna focus on a few passages from Christian scripture and kind of mind them for what they have to say about violence, war, and ethics of peace and nonviolence. So to get started, I want to just talk first about how violence is fundamental to how we think and act. Um, yesterday, I officiated a wedding for a couple connected to my church. And afterwards, the father of the bride came up to me and said, you killed it. And all I could think of, I said, thank you, because I was thankful. Um, but it reminded me of a conversation I heard recently between Ocean Vuong, a novelist and poet, and Krista Tippett on her podcast, On Being. And Ocean talked about how we often tell, he's a teacher, tell students that the future is in your hands. And he says, no, the future is in your mouths. And he goes on to talk about how the ways in which we talk about things shapes the reality we live in. And he particularly dives into the way violence is so entrenched in how we talk. We say, you're killing it, or oh, you slayed or um, and all these different words that we use for everyday items that are really really violent when we step by step back and look at it I hear it all the time since I first heard that conversation a while ago and I hope the father of the bride didn't see me twitch last night when he said you killed it because I was like I didn't kill anybody um, but it's it's so entrenched in our everyday life violence is hidden in plain sight everywhere that we look but it's also in our mission and vision and values. I drove by a church not too far from here the other day and saw this sign that said, people are the promised land. And I'm sure they had some lovely theology. They thought back that up. All I thought there was, so people are those to whom you can go colonize and subjugate and make believe the way that you do. And even the violence in that was so obvious to me because I'm thinking about it in ways that other people aren't always. But violence is entrenched in how we think and talk 
about everything. And it's part of the foundation of institutional Christianity. So much of what we know now as Orthodox Christianity started or is kind of rooted in the moment that Rome adopted Christianity as the official religion. And so, like any good scholar will say, we don't know exactly what was happening almost 2,000 years ago when Rome decided to become a Christian empire. But the story is that it happened after Constantine's conversion and he um, issued the Edict of Milan in 313 CE, which made Rome or made Christianity the official religion of Rome. There's a lot of debate whether or not Constantine actually believed in Christianity. He like wasn't baptized until his deathbed. But the story is he decided to make Christianity the official religion of Rome after he himself converted and he was inspired by God to do this because this is the right religion. So the story of his conversion is an interesting one, kind of a gory one in my opinion, but I think it's illustrative of how violence is so wielded into everything we do even as Christians. So it was said that in a defining battle of his rule and reign, I don't know too much of the military history of Rome 2,000 years ago, but in the middle of one of these formative battles, Constantine saw a vision of a cross coming out of the light over the battlefield. And he won this battle, it changed, it defined his rule as an emperor. And he said, God, it must have been the Christian God because it was a cross, was the one who blessed him in this battle. So soon after that, he became Christian. He made Christianity the official religion of Rome and even put the cross you can't quite see there in that image, um, on all of the official Roman military garb. So somehow in 300 years, this Jewish offshoot movement that was criticizing the Roman Empire and started when the Roman Empire put to death their leader on a cross, something had switched. And from some ironic reason, that religion had thus had become the official religion of Rome, centered around this moment of violence. So it's, it's ironic, and it's ironic to me that pretty soon thereafter, Rome started to falter. Christianity was never supposed to be the religion of that empire, and it didn't work out too well. But it's ironic, and it shows us that Christianity is rife with tension when it comes to talking about war or violence or peace. But that tension, I don't think, is a reason for disregard. Out of tension comes insight, and that's going to be our goal tonight. We're not going to figure out everything. We can't do that in 45 minutes. But I think we can find a few insights from the roots of Christianity, knowing that Christianity has been so married with violence and war over the years. But maybe we can get back to the original stories to mine some wisdom for what nonviolence might mean for us today. Yay, I read all my notes. So what we're going to do, I have four stories. Instead of going to Paul's letters or any other parts of the Christian Testament, we're going to look at four stories from the Gospels because um, I think they're some of the most historic resources we have about the life of Jesus who was practicing some subversive forms of nonviolence. Um, so we'll look at four of them, kind of look at some of his teachings, and then a story around his death, because that's fitting. Um, and through that, I will read the story. I'll offer some um, insight from what I know, from some scholars that I like, and then we'll have some moments for discussion at the table after each one. So we'll work through, and I think through it all, we'll have some cool insight. So the first story that I want to look at tonight comes from Matthew 5, chapter 13. Chapter 5, verses 38, and therefore, and it's one of my favorite stories from the New Testament. Um, so it's on your papers, and it's on the screen. I could read it, but instead, does someone else feel led to read this first scripture? Go for it. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not... 
resist the evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Thank you. And so this passage has inspired many people to think many different ways about how to let other people treat them. And on the surface, it's not that inspiring. It just says, let people walk all over you. But it's also inspired some pretty gnarly theologies of war and violence, too. So Augustine read this verse, and it's a comment that says, do not resist an evildoer, as instruction for this radical commitment to non-resistance. So he said you should never resist an evildoer, you should never practice self-defense, but, well, maybe there's one hole in that logic. Maybe if someone's attacking the neighbor, which God also tells us to love, then we can step up and stop that. So Augustine built this complicated theology of non-resistance, saying you should never resist unless it's interfering for someone else's life. And that really gave, that was a seed for the just war theory. So Christians ever since then have been looking at Augustine's little note and saying, well, we can go to war if it's to protect other people. And so this idea of do not resist an evildoer has been used to um, seed some really different ways of understanding things. But one of my favorite theologians, Walter Wink, I was going to bring his book, The Powers That Be, but I can never find it because I use it so much and leave it different places, says instead that Jesus never displayed that kind of passivity. He wasn't this passive, non-resistant person, but instead he called this verse in particular one of the most revolutionary political statements ever uttered. So first he talks about this word, do not resist, that we have in the English translation. The Greek for it is anastani. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but it literally means to stand against, anti, anti, stani, to stand against. So we hear that now. We can think of that as like a metaphor for resisting something. But when you trace the etymology of that, that word was a word that was used particularly in warfare. So it was a word that was used when two armies would come up against each other and they would stand against each other, or that is fight. So when the original audience heard this word, they would have heard the word not stand against, but fight, do not fight an evildoer versus do not resist an evildoer. But Wink goes on to describe how, especially in the King James Version, this interpretation resist was chosen because it was a way for people with power to perpetuate this binary for oppressed people that you could either fight or you could flee, and there's no other way. Instead, Walter Wink shows us how this idea of turning the other cheek and not resisting an evildoer is not part of this fight or flight binary, but actually a third way of dealing with moments of violence. He says, Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but instead to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. So this third way transcends both passivity and active violence with a third way that's assertive, yet still nonviolent. And so... I might ask you to act this out a little at your table with a partner. We don't quite have two by two by two, but we're going to kind of go through this idea of getting hit on the right cheek that we see in Matthew 5 and unpack how it's this active resistance, this active nonviolence. And so he starts off by talking. When we read that verse, go back, um, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, our first instinct is to imagine a blow with the right fist. So if I'm going to hit someone on the right cheek, I'm probably going to punch them. But if I'm going to hit someone with my right hand, so this is where you need to try this. So, so partner up with someone. 
lift up your right hand. Please don't actually hit them. But if you're going to try to hit them with your right hand, you're going you're gonna to hit their left cheek, right? So Jesus says here, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. So if you want to hit someone with the right cheek, what are you going to do? Use your left hand. But you can't do that in this day and age. In this, in this age, the left hand was only used for unclean tasks. So Qumran, a Jewish religious community in Jesus' day, they said if you gestured with the left hand, it meant that you were excluding yourself and needed to do penance for 10 days. So I'll see y'all later. <laughs> so he's saying here, this is where we really have to try it. If you want to hit someone's right cheek with your right hand, what do you do? Backhand. You backhand them, or another word that I shouldn't say in church. So if you're going to hit someone with the right hand, this is the only way that you can do it. So when you hit someone with the back of your right hand on their right cheek and they turn the other, they turn, that's where things get complicated. So as we know, it's still present today. The backhand was not this blow that intended to injure someone. Instead, it was intended to insult, humiliate, degrade. It is like a slap of another sort. It was not administered to an equal, but to an inferior. Masters backhanded slaves, husbands backhanded wives, parents, children, Romans to Jews. The whole point of this type of blow, getting hit on the right cheek, was to force someone who was out of line back into their place. And so Jesus is careful to say, if anyone strikes you, the people he was talking to were not Roman officials. They were not the people with power. They were the Jewish peasants that were constantly being put back into their place. And so when he says to turn the other cheek, he's saying to refuse to accept this kind of treatment anymore. If they backhand you, turn the other cheek. Because the thing is, if the, the servant gets backhanded and turns the other cheek, it's impossible for the master to backhand them again. You can't do it. If you, if you backhand them on the right cheek and you try to do it again, you're either going to hit them or the, the nose is in the way. So if you try to hit them again, you're either going to awkwardly swipe at them like my old cat swipes at me sometimes, or you're going to fight them with a fist. But to move from a backhand to a fist is to turn that person into an equal. So if you turn the other cheek, the nose gets in the way, your only option is to hit them with a the fist. So the person who was hit is saying, look, if you're gonna fight me, you're gonna fight me as an equal. Walter Wink says that turning the other cheek is like trying to tell a joke twice. It does, if it didn't work the first time, it's simply not going to work again. But he calls this turning the other cheek an act of defiance that renders the master incapable of asserting his dominance in this relationship. He could have the slave beaten, but he can no longer cow him. By turning the other cheek, the inferior is saying, there we go. The inferior is saying, I'm a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God, and I will not take it anymore. And so Walter Wink presents this in his book, The Powers That Be, which really looks at the systemic powers in our world as spiritual powers. He talks about how there's a spirit to everything that we do, and he would call capitalism in our own day in society, something like the demonic powers that we read about in the New Testament. So this idea here is that there are little ways in which nonviolent resistance crop up to help us dismantle and disarm the systems of violence in our world. 
And he says that such turning the other cheeks moments disarm the system and he thinks offers a way to break it down. It's a small way to say, I'm not going to accept this system. So if you want to fight me, you're going to have to do it in a different way. And it, it starts to break things down. So from this story, turning the other cheek, the first insight that we get of nonviolence from a Christian perspective is that nonviolence is this active assertions of one's own humanity. So a commitment to nonviolence starts with the fact that I am human and I deserve to be treated as such. I am in the image of God and I deserve to be treated as such. We'll see how it unpacks from there, but this turning the other cheek is not this passive let people walk all over you. I've struggled to do that my whole life but instead it's sustaining up for oneself, even when it's hard, even when it's awkward, even when it's vulnerable, but this aggressive, this assertive, like, no, I've refused to be treated as such. So we're gonna stop here with this first story and I have a few questions for you to consider at your table. Um, first, what ideas and feelings does this story spark in you? Have you heard this interpretation before? Have you not? If you need to act out the, the backhand again, please do, don't injure anybody at your table. The second question um, is connected to, if we continue reading this passage, the next teaching that Jesus offers is to love your enemy as yourself, which I think is the crux to the gospel, a whole commitment to nonviolence itself. Don't need to get in there, into there tonight, but maybe think, how is turning the other cheek a form of loving the enemy? Um, and can you think of any other version of turning the other cheek in your own life? Another way to stand up and say, like, no, you're going to treat me as human, not the way you're trying to, to treat me. So let's take three minutes at your table and discuss one or more of the questions. So I wonder if anyone had a creative analogy to turning the other cheek. We had one over here about if you're working with college students and they tell you that your shirt is ugly, you say, you might be right. It like de-escalates things. That's a little more trivial, but I think it's funny. Were there any other parallels, analogies that y'all could think of? Or any other interesting comments you would like to lift up? Yeah, I have an interesting comment that we didn't, we didn't talk about, but I wrote it on the page, which is uh, in, in terms of thinking about uh, how to be proactive and to define the field, the world, the worldview, the context, the language, the meaning, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the extreme right right now. Hmm. Like instead of being reactive, which is, it's very triggering, at least mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. But to, either meditate, take a breath, go read somebody I trust or whatever, to ground myself in my own worldview, context, field, language, meaning. Wow. And start talking that and see if they can be engaged mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by standing and having presenting a, a different, just a whole different worldview. Yeah, wow. That connects something, is it Will? Will was saying is like this act, this choice of active nonviolence is a choice to trust in something bigger than the world that that moment feels like it's offering. And maybe that's a connection to the enemy love is like you're going to choose in the love that's greater, even the violence that you're experiencing. You're going to believe in a world in which all people have the image of God. And sometimes that can be really hard. But that's I just saw a quote from Viktor Frankl. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He's a Holocaust survivor. And he talks about how. Everyone lives in a space between S and R, between stimuli and reaction. And some people, that space is like no space. But the more we can develop to enlarge in that space, to meditate, to not react but respond, the more we will find ourselves at more peace in the world, maybe creating more peace outside of ourselves. And that's, that, that trust there, I think that's palpable. 
So the first insight I think we can get from Jesus' life and teachings and death and resurrection is that not, Christian nonviolence is rooted in an active assertions of one's own humanity, but it doesn't stop there. So the next story we're going to look, like, look at comes from the Good Samaritan, really this pivot of the person's question, who is my neighbor? So can I get somebody else to read this part from Luke 10? Dot, dot, dot. So I'm assuming that we're all familiar with the story of the Great Samaritan. Even if we're not, we don't need to read it all right now. The story goes on to say that this Jewish man, we presume, walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, gets robbed by a band of robbers and is left there to die. And then two Jewish elite religious leaders, the people to whom he belonged and who should take care of him, theoretically, just leave him there to pass because they're busy. They got other things to do. As a busy Christian minister, I understand that temptation. But the pivot there is when the third person comes by, a Samaritan. This person helps him, takes him to an inn, makes sure that he gets back on his feet. And this person goes out of his way to support this man who is a stranger on the side of the road. So we have Good Samaritan clauses. We use the word Good Samaritan as a common colloquial term in our world for people who go out of their way to do something nice. But as we may know, there's some, a layer deeper here. The Samaritans were not friends, buddy buddies with Jewish people in Jesus' time, but instead the Samaritans were the neighboring country that the Jewish people really looked down on. There was a lot of animosity there. And so the original readers would have heard this and they would have said, oh, a Samaritan, we don't want to be thinking about them. And then they would have been shocked that it was a Samaritan that went out of their way to help this man on the side of the road. So the story teaches us a radical commitment to see everyone as neighbor, even and especially those who we have to break social boundaries to take care of. A similar strand to this idea that everyone is a neighbor, that we are in the breadth of humanity, we all belong to God, even those we don't get along with, even those we're supposed to hate. That idea is also found in one of the most formative nonviolent Christian thinkers in American history, Martin Luther King Jr. So there was a lot of different work from MLK that I could have pulled from, but there's one idea in particular that I'm really interested in that I think connects here. Um, and so Martin Luther King talks about how we, in some senses, are three-dimensional as people. And he's not talking about like physically three dimensions, but in a more metaphorical sense, there are three dimensions in which we all live as individual souls. The first dimension he calls length. So he's talking about this is like, the dimension of ourselves through time. So we all know that we are on a timeline that's going to come to an end. And a lot of times we get so stuck in that, that we're only thinking about how I'm gonna get from here to the end and what I need to do to make the most of it, enjoy it the most for myself. Not really thinking about other people. I'm not thinking about deeper meaning, but I'm just thinking about maybe it's survival or maybe it's accomplishment. Maybe it's doing everything that I can do in the length of my life. 
The second dimension that Martin Luther King talks about is breadth. So we have the length of our own life, which is really just dealing with us. And then we also have the breadth. And this is our relationship to others. And he says that a lot of Americans in his day and time, and we could probably argue today, aren't even there. They're not even connected to breadth. They're only stuck on themselves, and they can't really take into account that we live in relationship with others. I saw Krista Tippett speak a few weeks ago, and a question she often poses is, who are we to each other? That has been stuck in my mind. That's a fundamental question about the breadth of life that a lot of us aren't trained to be asking. So those are the first two dimensions. And the third dimension Martin Luther King talks about is the depth of life. And this is our relationship with the transcendent, with the ultimate, with God, with meaning itself. So we can live in one or two or all three. Martin Luther King, in a sermon we'll read an excerpt from in a moment, talks about how we're called to live in all three. He says in particular, um, this is him preaching, he says, I am convinced that this is the basis of our problem in the area of race relations today. This is our problem in the South, and this is our problem all over the United States. Many of our white brothers are concerned only about the length of life, their preferred economic positions, their political power, their so-called way of life. If they would ever rise up and add breadth to length, we would be able to solve all of the problems in our nation today. A bold claim, but one that I think he's onto something with. So he says there that we need to add breadth to length, that a lot of white people in America are only concerned with their way of life and how it's going to get them through the end of their life. But he goes on in this sermon and other writings, and my ethics professor had a whole book about this idea too, that we're a Trinitarian self, a three-dimensional self. But we really need to grasp the length, the breadth, and the depth of life to really live in hope, peace, and harmony with others. The importance of all this is, is when we live in the length, breadth, and depth of life, we realize that we are all wrapped up in the image of God. My length of life matters, that it's not to be disregarded entirely for the concerns of others. But in the same way I matter, so does everyone else. Everyone else has their lifeline that's wrapped up in the depth of God, and everyone is created in the image of God. So this is a story, or the same idea that I think we see in the introduction and in the story of the Good Samaritan. We see these three, this three-dimensional self when Jesus pulls from the ancient Jewish tradition of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and your mind. So that's the depth and the length, everything that you have you're going to love God with, but also love your neighbor as yourself. You have to love yourself, and you love your neighbor. So the Good Samaritan unpacks this, the implications of this three-dimensional self by saying if you're really living in the fullness of yourself, every single person you come along, you come by, is also in the image of God and worth going out of your way to trust or to, to support, to take care of. And so I, as I've been preparing for tonight, I've been reading a book by Judith Butler called The Force of Nonviolence. She is not a Christian thinker, but I think she sums up a lot of Christian ideas. Last time I was here, I quoted this book too, so we love, we love a callback. Um, this connects to an idea she offers about grievability. So in this book, she talks about practicing nonviolence. And one of the fundamental things we need to think about is who is really grievable to us today? So in Jesus' time, this story of a Jewish person, to the Samaritans, this Jewish person was not grievable. For all intents and purposes, that Samaritan should have been like, ha, you got what you deserve, and kept on along with his day. 
In our own day and age, we struggle to treat all people as grievable. I think about our mass incarceration system and how it trains Americans to think that people who we call criminals aren't really grievable, so we shouldn't feel bad about them. You know, something some of us may struggle with is people who don't take COVID seriously. We make jokes about how we wish they would die and how we treat them as not grievable. So Judith Butler talks about how fundamental to nonviolence is this commitment to treating everyone as grievable, that everyone's death, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done to you or anybody else, is grievable. And I think we see that here in this story of the Good Samaritan. This idea that everyone is grievable is the same idea that every single human is created in and bears the image of God. So the first two insights we get from Jesus' life and teachings are the that nonviolence is an active assertion of one's own humanity and an active assertion of the humanity of all others. So we're going to move on to the third story just for noting our rhythm and time tonight and looking at one of the more, I would say, violent stories in Jesus' own uh, story. And so in Mark 11, and this is in all four of the Gospels, but we're going to read the Mark version tonight. Um, we have a story of Jesus flipping over the tables, turning over the tables. It kind of expands and challenges our idea of what, like, is property something that we can be violent against? And, and what, what times may some aggressive action that looks violent be called for? So can I get somebody to read the Mark account of Jesus flipping over the tables? Oh, me too. Go for it. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. Spellbound. Maybe Jesus was a witch. I like it. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I have a feeling it's I'm not alone in that. It's a magic story. And what, one of the reasons it fascinates me, it's one of the few stories that's in all four of the Gospels, pretty similarly to some extent. I think John moves it way earlier in his story, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's one of the last stories before Jesus, the crucifixion story, the movement to the crucifixion. So as a biblical scholar, one of our hunches is if a story is mentioned more than once in the New Testament, there's probably more historical accuracy there. So we don't actually know if Jesus did this, but of all the stories in the New Testament, this is something that most likely happened. So a lot of scholars look at this and say, Jesus did this. He went and flipped the tables and caused this disruption. And a lot of people think it's what got him killed. A lot of scholars say, people like Rome, no one was really paying attention to Jesus. There was a lot of peasant revolts going on in his day. But this, along with the Palm Sunday story of his tri triumphal entry, is what got Rome's attention and ultimately sparked the, the ignition, to what led to his crucifixion. So... When I was thinking about Christian conversations of violence and nonviolence, I knew I had to talk about this story. And my first question was, how does property and protest fit into practicing nonviolence and peace? I think some people think nonviolence is just sitting passively and waiting for the, the world to change, while others know that nonviolence requires this act of aggression. And this conversation has been 
pointing it in particular in these recent years um, with protests going on all around the country and world and even right down the street in the plaza that led to a lot of damage of property and a lot of Christians getting clutching their pearls because they couldn't imagine what was happening and some of us saying like well Jesus was flipping tables so maybe there's something here but as I was trying to find out what some contemporary theologians are saying about this I came across a similar but kind of unrelated idea that really spoke to me um, and so one of and so one of the scholars that I found talks about this story and says that it shows us that any movement for nonviolence, any movement really changed the world at all, has to go beyond a single individual. So there's an article in which a scholar talks about how Jesus flipping over the tables, there are other people in the room, but it wasn't all of the people who were making money from the temple business. So we see the story and we see him protesting the way in which the temple had become this economic site, which people were making money off of selling the things that people use for sacrifices, right? So Jesus was pissed off about that, rightfully so. But by going into the temple and brandishing that whip and driving out all the animals and flipping over the tables, all the people who were making money probably weren't there in their temple, in the temple. Instead, it was their workers, their servants, these lower class people that should have been Jesus' comrades who were sitting behind those tables and those booths. And so a scholar, I forget her name. Nope, I don't. It's Catherine, Catherine Chainer. Um, she talks about how low status workers in the temple this day of this disturbance involving Jesus knew that this disruption in their work would create an opportunity to rally not only their fellow workers, but all of the other impoverished, travel-weary pilgrims. Jesus didn't do this in Jerusalem in any time of the year. He did this during one of the main holy feasts of the Jewish people. So it was bustling. Dis disrupting the commerce in this part of the temple would have garnered everyone's attention. Once their attention was focused on this resistant movement in which Jesus was a part, more people could gather to hear how and why the protests and disruption should continue. This rallying cry was given by enslaved people, low-status women, and other vulnerable workers together who may not have had other means of gathering. And this might create a disruption in cycles of exploitation and abuse, even if only for a moment. This move is potentially more transformative for geopolitical realities in the first century CE, indeed in the contemporary context too, than a single savior could enact. So in the wake of Christianity, most of us focus on Jesus as this individual that saved us. But this scholar is saying this story shows us that Jesus was trying to rally other people around him. He wasn't just trying to do something dramatic all on his own, but by doing so, by flipping over the tables, he may have posed what seemed like violence to some of those workers, but he was actually saying, hey, look, we can stop and we can do things differently. And so one of the insights we get here and Excuse my bad grammar, I kind of don't care about bad grammar, but it's nonviolence is about we and not just about me. And Judith Butler, again, in this book, talks about how individualism and American thought has really ruined how we talk about nonviolence because we can only think about it as this individual commitment that I have to make and do perfectly instead of realizing it's a sort of collective action. So the third insight we get from the Christian Testament in terms of thinking about nonviolence is it's an active assertion of one's own humanity. It's an active assertion of the humanity of all others. And it's something we do together. But the story does not stop there. Like I said, Jesus, by flipping over the tables and causing a ruckus into Jerusalem, caught the officials' attention and ultimately led to his death on the cross. 
Um, so even earlier than Constantine being converted in the middle of war and making Christianity the official religion of Rome, there was an act of violence at the beginning, the conception of Christianity that we have to confront. So I'm gonna read the, the Mark's account of the crucifixion, which is probably the oldest. I love the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I want you to hear it maybe with some fresh eyes and then take a second afterwards to hear what you noticed in this retelling of Jesus' crucifixion. And it begins, And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a school. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. Those who, those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. So that's not the full story, but we get a picture of Jesus actively dying on the cross, being ridiculed by everyone around him. Most of his followers, the male followers, fleeing, and he's left there alone. So every time I hear this story, it speaks to me in new and different ways. I wonder... Tonight, was there any fresh insight or something you noticed in Mark 15's telling of the crucifixion? Disrupt the matrix. Disrupt the matrix. Amen. I just recently read Amy Jolabine's new book on Witness at the Cross. Yeah. And there are a lot more people to take into account about who were there why they were there, what they were doing. And mm -hmm. so when I hear an, an old story of the crucifixion, I'm drawn back to A.J.'s book I love A.J. Levine, and now I need to read that book. But that is exactly what I was paying attention to, and this, even right now, but I was just preparing, noticing all the people around him who were watching him and mocking him. And the story goes on to talk about all the male disciples fled, and there were just his mother and a few of the other women who were part of his crew. So this crucifixion story is nothing new, but the story here, at least the more broad story, even goes beyond what happened to Jesus, where someone is being put to death and everyone's watching and letting it happen. From the beginning of humanity, people have, been put, people have put to death those who are too dangerous to the way things are, those who are disrupting the matrix. There's this tendency within humanity to suppress those people. We often scapegoat, um, which one of my favorite theologians says is like a fundamental behavior for humanity. Um, and this example of Jesus dying on the cross is an example of scapegoating. So we may have heard the word scapegoating, but one of my favorite examples of it comes from this theologically rich movie called Lion King. So if you're familiar with the Lion King story, you know that after Simba's father dies, Mufasa dies, Scar, his uncle, is like, Simba, this was your fault thus scapegoating Simba, leading him to leave the community until he's transformed and can come back and save his people. 
So there's a theologian, Rene Girard, who looks at mythology throughout all the ages and contemporary things. He was alive when Lion King came out, so I wonder if he wrote about it. But he sees the scapegoating mechanism as fundamental to human behavior. He goes as far as saying the first sin in proto-humanity before we evolved into humans was something like scapegoating. And he talks about how if all of us were locked in this room together for whatever reason for a few days and we were struggling to survive, chances all we may turn on one person and saying that you did this to us. Even if we knew it wasn't true, we would feel better. And so Rene Girard talks about how there's all these myths throughout human history that show us the scapegoating mechanism, but cover it, baptize it, excuse it as part of something that's necessary. And many of us have experienced that too. Scapegoating makes us feel good. Been a part of friend groups in previous lives in which we all started to hate one person and we all felt so rallied around it. And there's all these other stories we can think of of how scapegoating works until it doesn't because it doesn't work for that one person who's being scapegoated. Exactly, exactly. And so Rene Girard sees the cross, the story of the crucifixion, as he says the first moment in human history in which the scapegoating mechanism is fully exposed. It's, it's put on display for us all to see. And how watching it, we can't step away and being like, well, it sucks that Jesus died, but he probably needed to because we're all going to be happier about it. Instead, it's the story of like, oh no, the one that we scapegoated, that is God. God is located within the scapegoating victim, and we have to do things differently because of that. So the cross does not excuse this ritualized violence, this scapegoating that's fundamental to who we are as humans. Instead, it exposes it. It's the climax of a story that's fundamental to humanity that convicts us and calls us into a new way of being. So theologian, we may all, may all be familiar with, James Cone talks about this too, and looking at the ways in which the lynching tree in American history really is similar to the cross. He says, he complains, rightfully so, about how the cross has been transformed into this harmless, non-offensive ornament that we wear around our necks. But he says, until we can see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with the re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America, no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. So The Cross and the Lynching Tree is one of his more recent books. He's the father of black liberation theology. He's written a lot. One of his most poignant indictments on American Christianity is that we have never really talked about those similarities between lynching, modern-day lynchings, too, and the cross, which was a lynching. When you study the history of lynching, that's what the cross was. But because we've, we've sanctified and we've done exactly what Rene Girard says we shouldn't, and we baptize the scapegoating mechanism and the crosses, well... Daddy God needed his son to be sacrificed so that we could all go to heaven when we die. We fail to see the reality of what's actually there. And so James Cone criticizes the image of the cross. I've noticed that I get a little sick when I see the cross sometimes in these sentimental moments because I'm like, no, this isn't about you feeling better about yourself. This cross is one of the most haunting images in human history. I mean, he says that, that there, that's not what's redemptive, this excusing of violence. But instead, what's redemptive is that God is being identified with the one who's being put to death. And so another our author that I'd recommend reading, and I'm going to skip by what I have to say with her tonight, is Kelly Brown Douglas. She has a book called Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God in which she looks at the ways in which the stand-your-ground ideology that's so prevalent in our society. She looks particularly at the death of Trayvon Martin and how the stand-your-ground laws excuse that. She goes and traces it back to Christian theologies and manifest destiny, etc., um, and, and dismantles it for us today and says 
no. Like, stand up for yourself, but don't stand your ground. And she points, she, she points to the fact that crucifixion was not the end of the story. Instead, resurrection was. So when we study the cross, we see that the empty cross is significant. And it is an image of hope because Jesus' body isn't there. But there are some other theologians who say that the cross was never the central image that bore Christianity. Instead, it was the empty tomb, that the place at which the person who Rome put to death was supposed to be located, put away, always there, so we know his dead body's there, and what he had to tell us will never be true, that that got emptied. Mysteriously, this empty tomb where we thought the end of the story was supposed to be found wasn't there, but instead it's this opening to thinking of a new way of being. And so... Resurrection, the, the ending point of Christianity, perhaps the beginning point of it because it's what sparked the movement, is not this excusal of the cross. It's not, well, we needed the cross in order to get it done. It's this harrowing look at this act of violence that we mimic in all sorts of ways now. And it's saying, no, we're not going to accept it. And so the, the, the final insight that we have from Christianity or from the stories of Jesus, if not historical Christianity, is that nonviolence is an active assertion of one's own humanity. It's an assertion of everyone's humanity. It's something we do together, and it's about exposing systems of violence. So it's not about this perfect practice of never hurting a fly. As much as I love the Jainists and how radical their commitment to nonviolence is, I think the nonviolence we're inspired by in Christianity is more of a practice. It's something we do together. Judith Butler talks about how it's something we're never going to get perfectly right because it's not this individual ideal to which we commit. Instead, it's something we seek to practice on and on. And she says, too, that it's not this only active choice to resist violence, but it's also this active choice to stand up for life where it would be easy not to. So the Good Samaritan story is potent for theologies of nonviolence because the Samaritan could have walked by. Maybe he did have a busy day. But nonviolence isn't simply resisting violence, but it's going out of your way to celebrate life where you find it. Um, she also has some interesting conversations about war. I wanted to talk more about war tonight, but I wanted to go a little bit more to the roots of Christianity. Um, and she uses Freudian thought to talk about how war globally is this manifestation of the death drive, that there's this thing within humanity in which we want to destroy ourselves. And I think this is connected to Christian theologies, because if we really love ourselves and love others, we're going to refute this weird evolutionary tendency within us. But I think it also shows us that practicing nonviolence really does start with ourselves, that we have to love ourselves, love others around us, and look for moments in which we can expose, disarm, and dismantle systems of violence. And yeah, so it is a few minutes past 7.37. I had some questions, or past 7.30, some questions for us to finish off with, but I'll just leave them on the screen for you to ponder in your own. Um, but throughout the week, as you go along, I hope that these stories sit with you and you start to see small or maybe significant ways in which they inform your day-to-day -day life and this practicing nonviolence, never getting it perfect, but keep on practicing it. Um, and two, I'd invite you to think about a time in which you chose nonviolence, which may have looked like resistance, active resistance, or it may have looked like going out of your way to stand up for life where you could have easily said no. Judith Butler says that nonviolence is choosing an alternative when violence makes sense to do. So sometimes you're angry and it makes sense to act out on it, but saying, 
no, I'm not going to do that. And I think there are small ways in which we do that in all of our lives, that we actively resist and we actively stand up in continuing the story of Jesus. I don't believe the story of Jesus is something we intellectually assent to. It's something we embody and practice and continue. That empty tomb is still empty, and we, make it, we, we keep it empty by practicing nonviolence in our own lives. So I wonder, any thoughts or questions before we wrap up? Yes, of course. Bring it. Uh, so uh, this, is, this has been very interesting. And you told that story about like just standing at the welcome table, and people would come in and just start criticizing and dumping on you and everything. And what this, you know, this whole thing makes me think of is, are there insightful, creative ways to use attacks in order to engage people? Like use what they're presenting you with, whatever it is, mm-hmm. to somehow get both of you on the same side and put the problem or the concern or the need or the whatever on the other side so that somehow you're, you're on the same side together. Right. I mean, that's kind of like the ugly shirt comment, right? Like, a, oh, you're trying to come at me, but I'm going to disarm it. But there's more dynamic ways that plays out in real situations. And then, and then there's the, the thing, how do you inter- interrupt other Mm-hmm. Just what, and, and are there different ways of getting people to either step back or step over? Or, that's a question I'm left with. Yeah. How do you? Can you say that one more time? How do you? Uh, how do you uh, interrupt or disrupt or transform mm-hmm. othering? Just the, the tendency to, you know, and some people who have a tendency to be contrarians and they lead with a with an argument. Mm-hmm. There's a lead mm-hmm. with an argument mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a relationship. Uh, but how do you get past that? And how do you get yourself to not buy into that? Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, too, kind of what you said earlier, like fight or flight is evolutionarily part of how we function and operate. So it makes sense that people are contrarian sometimes, that finding that space within ourselves mm-hmm. to dismantle it within first so that we can see those moments or as they come. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the fourth way, maybe. <laughs> the flight, flight, freeze, or the fourth way. Yeah. There is a fourth way. Uh, the fifth way, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our theories of evolution are evolving, too. It keeps you moving, but in a good direction. Yeah, wow. Thank you. It's been a lot to think about. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure 